Welcome to After the JAG Corps, Navigating Your Career Progression, a podcast for judge advocates leaving military service. After the JAG Corps assists officers transitioning from the military law practice by learning from individuals who have successfully embarked on new careers, providing insight on rewarding professional opportunities, job search strategies, resumes, the value of your military experience, and more. Now, here is your host, Tom Welsh. Today, we are doing something different. This podcast has not one, but two guests who offered to share their insights in transitioning from the military law practice to work as a civilian. And what I think is going to make this discussion really interesting is that these two individuals retired about eight years apart from the United States Marine Corps. First is Rob Butch Bracknell, who retired in 2014 after a 22-year career and now works as an assistant legal advisor at NATO's Allied Command Transformation in Norfolk, Virginia. And our second guest is Brigadier General John Baker, who recently retired after a long career. General Baker's last assignment was Chief Defense Counsel for Military Commissions and is on his way to become the next federal public defender in the Western District of North Carolina. Gentlemen, thank you and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. I'll get things started. You guys approached me about coming on to share to your perspectives, which is exactly what I asked for when I put my trailer together. And I'm very thankful because I want to gather as much information as I head towards the exit. And you gentlemen took time to put together some thoughts for this conversation. So my question to you is, what is your motivation for doing this? Butch and I were kind of talking about the transition process. I had just gotten a job offer that I was excited about, reflecting with Butch on how much harder the process was than I expected that it would be. And that kind of the tools that are out there for judge advocates are really aimed towards more junior judge advocates. And Butch was somebody during the course of my transition that I spent a lot of time texting, emailing, and and talking to over the phone. So we talked about that there is this big empty void. And then we saw Steve Barney post your podcast on, I think it was LinkedIn. So the timing was really good. So I got to ask you, Butch, you were a sort of a mentor to General Baker. The tips that you offered, was that something that you learned only in hindsight or is it something that you practice in your own transition process? Yeah. So, so this is an interesting role reversal when you describe me as a mentor to General Baker. I just happened to have come first in time before him. We did have productive discussions. And frankly, I learned things from him as he was going through his process. I went through the process when I left active duty, and I'm in a position now where I'm probably going through that process again. I'm kind of actively engaged in looking around to see if there's opportunities that fit me now. So I'm kind of going through it twice. And I think that some people go through it several times, and each time it becomes a little different because you're not leaving active duty. You're leaving some other enterprise, whether it's public service, which I'm still in, or moving to the private sector. It has been a continuous learning experience for me. It's been experiential learning combined with mentorship from others and internet research and reading everything I could get my hands on to try to form the best picture in my head about how it can be done better. And I I experienced so much pain, not emotional pain, but like just difficulty in the transition process that I thought it was really helpful for me to say, here's what I learned and capture what I learned and share it with others. Okay, so that's a great segue. Uh, What would you tell others? It's not nearly as easy as it's not nearly as easy as you think it might be to find the right fit for you. You can find a job. The question is, are you finding the job that animates you? Does it meet your financial needs for where you are in your life? Does it meet your professional needs? Does it meet your emotional needs? Whatever your needs are, and everybody has a different picture for that. 
Some of them, you could probably bend them into professional is paramount or financial is paramount or work-life balance is paramount. You know, you come off active duty and you think, I had a great career in the Marine Corps and I was a high performer, et cetera, et cetera. And you think that that's automatically going to transition to your next life. And it does, but it takes some effort. You're not quite the hot commodity. As General Baker said a few minutes ago, the junior folks have a different experience than more senior folks, I think. And I think they probably have an easier experience. If you're in the Marine Corps for six years and you do prosecution, defense, and say one other billet or something like that, and then you move out to a law firm when you're 33 or 34, you've just done something for six years that gave you some valuable experience and you are kind of on the same path that other lawyers are who left straight from law school and went into their firm life. Maybe you're a little bit behind them, but you get credit for the time you spent on active duty. It is really different for more senior folks who are just, it's a different experience and you have different goals and you're coming in at trying to come in at a different level. It's just harder than I ever thought it would be. Sure. And that's that's who I really care about, right? As a 50 plus year old guy, I care about those seniors. Joe Baker, you have it here start early. Were you able to do any of that in your last job, which I know was pretty demanding? The timing of COVID for me worked out well in that I wasn't on the road all the time. Even when things were busy, you just have to make time to begin to look for the next thing. And people are super gracious with their time. One of the things that I did was I just talked to a lot of people about a lot of different things, you know, kind of the informational interview. I didn't have anybody that I reached out to that didn't agree to talk to me. And I went through, I really feel like in my 15 month job search process, I went through really three or four different job searches because what I wanted, what I thought I wanted to do as I talked to people really wasn't certainly not what I ended up deciding to do. So having all these conversations was really helpful. You can do it in the morning, you can do it at night, you can do it on people's lunch break or whatever. But it's certainly with a high stress, high tempo job. It's, I mean, sometimes that's, you know, the way mine was in the last year plus. You just have to make time for it. The sign of a good leader is that the organization continues without you. So you don't have to pay attention all the time to what's going on in your day job to plan your transition. Yes, sir. You know, you make a note here about knowing what you want to do and take us through that. I was fortunate in that as a retiring general officer, I was able, I don't know if it's the DOD, the Department of Navy, whoever, somebody pays this company called Higher Echelon, I think it's Higher Echelon, to do a transition course that's different than any of the other transit. I did a couple of the other transition courses. And the focus of the transition course in the beginning is to figure out what motivates you because you, you, know, you have to decide, do I want to get just a job? Do I want to get a second career? Where do you want to live? You have to decide, do you want to find purpose in your next job or do you want it to be just a job? And I, for me, I wanted to find purpose in the next job. And that's why these informational interviews are really helpful to walk you through my journey a little bit. I just assumed that a retiring general officer that's got a ton of litigation experience, you know, the law firms would just be opening their doors and opening their bank vaults to welcome me in. And then I talked to people that are actually partners in law firms. And I just don't fit their model. And frankly, they, they don't fit my model. I just, it just wouldn't work. But I said, that was just an assumption that I just had that was going to work. And it took a, a really good friend of mine to basically say, hey, man, this is no, this is not going to work for you. Uh, you need to go look at something else, which, you know, they'll redo the whole resume thing. So then to continue to talk to people. Then I thought maybe a law professor would be cool. 
well, I don't fit the law professor model. Um, you know, be a great adjunct, but not as a tenured law professor. Then I looked in the nonprofit world and made it through through several executive search law, nonprofit executive leadership sort of positions. But then I kept coming back to I like leading defenders, and so that's when I started to apply for federal defender jobs. This whole transition kind of journey wouldn't have happened if I wasn't reaching out and talking to people uh, like Butch. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to talk to somebody who had been out for a while. People in your transition course don't know any more than you. And the people teaching your transition course are all too busy. So you just have to find people to talk to. And when you're talking to them, it's okay to tell them you have no idea what you want to do. But when they connect you with somebody, like they, a friend of mine connected me with somebody really high up at Amazon. Uh, and I made the mistake of telling this person who, you know, she made a half hour available for me. It wasn't beneficial to me or her for me to basically tell her, ah, you know, I don't really know what I want to do. She really wanted to help me navigate the Amazon world. And I just was not prepared for that interview, their whatever informational interview, whatever you, whatever you call those things. So I felt like I wasted her time and my time. And I really kind of learned something from that. Yeah. So Butch, how about your journey? You're at NATO now. How did you end up there? This is a terrible thing to say. I hope nobody from NATO is listening. I wound up there because it was a job that fit my skill sets. And I was in a place where I needed to be at the time. And it was not much more. I didn't have some kind of particular burning passion to work for NATO. It was an opportunity. It came open. It was time for me to, to leave the Marine Corps. And there it was. It is not necessarily the job I was looking for, for real. It's a job that I settled for. And the truth of the matter is, the jobs that I really wanted, I wasn't qualified for anyway. Honestly, I wanted to move to a GC's office in the defense industry. And that's still where I want to wind up, either there or in a defense or tech or in a nonprofit world for like RAND or MITRE or a place like that. Those would be great landing spots. That's where I wanted to go. I had some interest with some big defense companies, but I wasn't able to get over the hurdle. I do think that the skills that I've acquired since I've been at NATO, I'm now the business attorney. I didn't do any business attorney work when I was on active duty. That's not even really part of the skill set in the Navy and Marine Corps. Army and Air Force, maybe a little more, or Navy, if you wind up going to OGC for a tour and you're doing something with contracting and things like that, you can probably round out your resume in a way. But that wasn't my path in the Marine Corps. So I was not as attractive a candidate as I thought I might be. So NATO has been good for me in terms of rounding out that contracting activity skill set, some compliance skills. I've learned a lot about export control. I've learned about running an ethics program inside the organization. Government ethics and corporate ethics for companies that are working with ethics are just two sides of the same coin. They're looking at the same issues, sometimes from opposite perspective. I do think that transition is a little bit harder for lawyers relative to the norm of the transition courses. The transition courses, like General Baker was talking about, they're good. And I went to mine and I, I extracted some value for it, but they are not optimized for lawyers. They're just not um, because we're a tiny fraction and there's special things about our profession that are just different from other professions. And they can't really account for that. So you, when you go to the transition course, I think you have to extract the value that you can from it and then understand that you're going to have to augment that with other information sources and other sources of wisdom. You're not going to get it all at the transition course because it's just not built for us. It's good. I'm not talking it down, but it's not optimized for lawyer transition. And I guess the last thing I would say is those points that General Baker made about folks going to firms, I agree with him. If you don't have a book, particularly at our age, if you don't have a book, they're not interested. And we don't have books. We don't do that, right? So where's your book if you're a transitioning colonel going to a firm? 
if you don't have a book, you better have a business plan and it better be compelling. And I've been through that a little bit and it's just a tough sell. A business plan is nothing more than a potential book. Well, I don't have a book, but this is how I would develop a book. And that's just more ethereal. It's more hypothetical than a real book of business. There are some exceptions. You do see some folks who go out and make it in the firm world. But I agree with General Becker, that is the exception uh, and not the general rule. And the folks who do that, it is kind of pretty few and far between. And the same with the academy. Uh, General Baker's right. The tenure track positions is a thing. And people who want to do that have, they basically form their whole lives in order to get to tenure track academia. There's some notable exceptions and some folks who've had some incredible success with that, like Jeff Korn, who just accepted a chair at Texas Tech, and Mark Nevitt, who just is moving to Emory Law from Syracuse Law, and Rachel Van Landingham. Those are three great examples of people who it was the most important thing for them to go and become law professors. And after they retired, they optimized everything in order to do that. Unless you are super committed to that, that's, I agree with John Baker, that's also probably not going to happen for you. So, so far, I guess we've succeeded in telling people what they can't do more than we <laughs> more than we have what they can do. But it's important to be realistic about what transition opportunities are available to us at this stage in our careers and how to optimize ourselves for, for getting where we want to go. That's a lot of great information. Segue into the, the courses. You know, we have the GPS, the TAP, whatever it's called this week. I attended Blue Water Advisors Career Progression Cohort down there in Norfolk with Mike Wallace. And General Baker, you recommended MOA's executive seminar. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, and MOA is not uh, paying me to talk about this, but I took the MOA executive seminar a couple of years ago and it was good. I mean, the seminar is good. It's a lot of the same materials that are taught at other transition courses. And then I took it again. But the best thing that you get out of the MOA Executive Transition Seminar is if you're a MOA member, is you get access to their transition service. And so I had a, essentially, I had a job coach. They looked at my resume, they looked at my cover letter. Before my first really big interview, we had a 90 minute interview prep session. I've been so impressed with the support that MOA gave me in the transition that I became a life member. Butch talked about you know, a lot of the courses aren't aimed for lawyers, so they helped me reach out to other lawyers to talk about their transition, senior lawyers, you know, because like the job for JAGs, which the, the Judge Advocate Association puts on is fantastic. The transition to online is just, it's incredible. Like 450 people listened to the last one, but it's mostly aimed for first tour or kind of mid-career people. It's different than those of us that are a little bit older. MOA folks are used to dealing with the executives. And so they were just super helpful to me. This was another group of people who told me, hey, what you're trying to do isn't going to work. You know, really spoke kind of truth to power sort of thing. I mean, they were honest with me and made, making me be honest with myself, which was very, very beneficial. I felt like joining MOA was the most important thing that I did in the transition. You know, there's a lot of stuff out there on how you should set up your LinkedIn profile, how you should do your resume, and you can come away with different pictures. But I wanted to circle back on something you guys started out talking about and Rob talked about trying to find something outside of what he's doing and qualification. You know, the question that you put here is how attractive are you? And I think that's one of the things that Judge Advocates looking at Butch's career track, probably yours as well, and and I know mine, is that we do all these different things. And as Butch said, they're important government-wise, but they don't easily transition into a civilian resume. So let's talk about making yourself attractive there and 
how you really aren't as pretty as you think. And how do you compensate for that? I got a thought on that, General Becker, if I may. I think that within ethical bounds, it is okay for you to go out and get training on the government dime before you leave active duty. If you can articulate a way that it makes you a better judge advocate while you're on active duty, with the corollary that it will also make you more attractive when you leave active duty. So, for example, when I was on active duty, I could sort of see the end coming at some point. And, and I said, you know, I don't know anything about government contracts. And then I asked myself, you know, as an SJA, do I really need to know about government contracts when OGC handles this? And I looked myself in the mirror and I straight faced and I said, yes. For example, I took a couple of contingency contracting courses before I went to Iraq the last time. And I was shocked at how much contingency contracting work I had to do as a regimental SJA for the Fighting Fifth Marine Corps Marine Regiment. And we were doing tons of because we were, you know, we were in a reconstruction phase at that point and we were doing economic development. And there was lots of contingency contracting and fiscal work that was coming across my desk. And I felt prepared for it because I had done that. And then I had the benefit of being able to say, yeah, if I had some, some contracting experience on active duty, smaller than big OGC prime program management or something like that. But it was at least enough that I could articulate for taking the courses in a straight-faced way. The other thing that I'll say is that there's a bunch of civilian certifications out there that we're more competitive for, and the civilians understand what they are. Here's an example. One that I'm pursuing right now, I'm getting some education on the uh, NATO dime, is a certified information protection professional, CIPP. All civilians in the information and data privacy and cybersecurity worlds know what a CIPP is. They don't know what a lieutenant colonel or colonel is. They don't know what your PFT score means. They have no clue or don't care what your rifle and pistol scores were, but they know what CIPP means. And so if you've met the standards of a, for a CIPP certification, that's something they can get their heads around. And there's all kinds of certifications. There's certified risk managers, there's certified ethics professionals. There's all these different certifications out there that you'll see folks and they'll have like these strings of letters behind their names. Those letters mean something. So I really think that going through these certifications speaks volumes about making your military experience understandable for folks not in the military. Well, Butch, let me ask you, follow up on that, getting certifications. Are they cost-based? Are they uh, free-based? Someone could could spend the family fortune pursuing certifications. So yeah, they're not free. Like, I mean, you have to invest in your own success to a certain extent, right? They're a few hundred dollars. So generally, the general model is there's some educational component and you either put yourself through a course or Maybe you, you took a course when you're in active duty or whatever, and then there's an experience component, and you have to be able to articulate how the experience that you had garnered on active duty fits into their model. And then there's a test at the end. And you can do the test. It's like a miniature GRE or something like that. But it's, not, it's not as hard as a GRE, but it's a test that you take. It's a neutral standard that tests lexicon and concepts and so forth to make sure that you really are meeting a neutral and objective standard in that field. So, yeah, you can't get 10 of them. I mean, I guess you could be devoted your life to it and you didn't mind spending the money to get 10 of them. But if you're focused on becoming an information lawyer or a cybersecurity lawyer when you leave active duty or a data protection and privacy lawyer, which incidentally is a absolutely, the field is on the uptick. If you've ever done any FOIA privacy and any kind of cyber work at all, CIPP is a, uh, the data protection and privacy stuff. Companies are falling all over themselves to comply with things like the general data protection regulation and then the data protection statutes that are in every country that isn't a EU member. Plus, you're starting to see these statutes crop up all over the place. California took the lead with the 
uh, CCPA, I think it was called. Virginia just passed one in last year. And you're going to see more and more of these. You, I don't think you're going to see a federal standard, but you are going to see lots of state standards with regard to data protection and privacy. And the fines, particularly the, the EU fines for GDPR violations are through the roof. So companies are investing in people to help them mitigate that risk. So in some, you, yeah, you got to invest a little time and energy, but you know, nothing worth having is, is free. It is a good path for showing civilian employers that you are not as different as you might appear just because you wore a tree suit for most of your career. Gotcha. I'm going to go ahead and ask this. And I know Butch kind of have you at the forefront on this section. You're talking about social media and the talking points. Please share your perspectives on social media, include Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and probably half a dozen things that young kids know that we don't. Well, anyone you know, knows I have no shortage of opinions, but I'm going to defer to General Baker for this, and then I'll, I'll follow up on his comments because I know he has some thoughts on this. I think that you need to have a presence on social media. In my mind, I felt like an absence of the social media presence would be noticed. Obviously, you got to have all your LinkedIn stuff uh, locked on, and there's a, how to lock on your LinkedIn profile. But I think that you need to use social media in a way that demonstrates that you're a thoughtful person and not, you know, like maybe my teenage kids might use social media because they're going to look. One of the nonprofits that I interviewed with, part of the package was I had to provide them access to my entire social media history. And they looked at everything and they wanted to look to A, to make sure that I wasn't a crazy guy. But they also were looking to see, did I have a social media presence and how did I use it? You know, our generation seems to be scared of putting stuff out there on the internet. I have always thought if you use your brain and you write things that are intelligent, that you shouldn't be scared to to put anything out there. And they talked about that in the, the geo transition course that I took was to thoughtfully post on social media. Like if I would go down to Gitmo and I would have a barbecue and I'd you know, take a picture of one of the judge advocates that I was with, that's an opportunity to post on social media that you're out there supporting the people that you work for. So I actively use social media. I love that. And I have some thoughts to, to add to that if I can. I hear, <laughs> I hear folks of a certain age all the time saying, well, I don't do social media. Sometimes it's folks who also have a hard time turning on their own computers and so forth because you know they didn't grow up with it. They're not as comfortable with it. And they just go, well, it scares me. It's scary. I'm just not going to engage with it. Okay, that's a technique. But understand, we live in the information age. It's really no longer an option to say that. I mean, it is an option, but I think you're placing yourself at a disadvantage. If you look on active duty, there are a handful of general officers and, and flag officers that are out there that are using social media and they are using it like gangbusters and they get it. I mean, they get it. The guy that jumps to mind to me is a major general named Pat Donahoe, and he commands the Army Maneuver Center of Excellence. And the other person that I thought was really good on social media was a guy named General Abrams, and he commanded U.S. Forces Korea. Two-star and four-star. And these two were not afraid of social media. They used it as a tool to move information that they wanted to move. General Abrams, for example, about half of his posts were, oorah, motivational, look at me, I'm out going for a run with the troops stuff. And the other half was he was taking on substantive issues and he was being heard on things that were important for people to hear from a general officer. He understood that standing up in front of a formation with everybody at parade rest is no longer maybe the best way or not the only way to channel information to the troops, that social media is available for that. I think that's the same for all of us. If you're not doing it, you're probably missing a great opportunity to be seen and to be heard about important things and to use the tool responsibly. 
So I, I do take kind of an old man approach on this because I only use three platforms, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. I don't use Insta and I don't use, I mean, I don't participate on Reddit. I go to Reddit for pop culture things and things like that to find out about, you know, what's trending and things like that, just to sort of stay in touch with my kids' lives and things like that. But LinkedIn, the number one thing is, I, I think, put time into developing your profile. I did. I put as much time into my LinkedIn profile as I did my resume. My LinkedIn profile is out there for the entire world to see whether I like it or not. My resume, I have to send it to you for you to see it. So the LinkedIn is like a permanent resume. So I thought it needed, it was important for it to look as good as, I, as my resume does. Maybe my resume is not perfect or whatever, but I did put time and effort into making it as perfect as I think that I can and then getting it reviewed. LinkedIn's the same way. It is your resume, whether you like it or not. And the other thing is I've seen a little bit of a trend in LinkedIn that it's evolved into just another place for people to yell at each other about politics. I don't touch politics on LinkedIn. I've made the mistake of engaging once or twice, and then LinkedIn interpreted that as I want to see more of that. So honest to God, I've had to retrain the algorithms not to engage with that stuff so that the professional information started coming back to the top of my feed. If you, if you engage in politics on that, you're going to limit the utility of the tool because the algorithms will send you more of that stuff and less stuff of true professional interest. That's all I got to say about that. This concludes part one of the conversation with General Baker and Butch Bracknell. Please join us next week for part two. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the Jag Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production. 